one of the reasons that I came to Journey Church was because I felt God was doing something really unique here, that God's spirit was working in the lives of people. You know, Brian is an interesting guy. Uh, I didn't know what he was going to say. I hadn't seen the Skype, prepared my message for this weekend. And uh, I, am, I was so encouraged and I am so uh, blessed to see God dovetailing things together because what you're going to think that he and I sat down and he was going to say this and I'm going to say this and back and forth. Folks, the bottom line of what Brian is trying to say there is that we have uh, an absolutely uh, phenomenal potential of doing things that uh, we could never do on our own. And that's what I'm going to be sharing about today as well, spiritually, individually, about spiritual gifts. But you know, uh, I think every church is always amazed uh, when it comes to building a building, what they can do if just everybody jumps in and participates. And so I hope you'll do that. I hope you'll find uh, time in prayer and just say, God, God, what do you want me to do as far as that, that $500,000 or uh, the, uh, campaign pledge or whatever it is? Just uh, in, enjoy asking God that and letting him be faithful to you uh, to provide that through you. So if you do that, that would be great. And we'll uh, kind of take a look at the rest of that uh, message that I've got right here in just a second. Let's pray, okay? Father, we thank you for being here, for being present with us. I thank you for the confirmation, even in what Brian is saying today, uh, that uh, uh, what, I've sh- what I've prepared and what I'm going to share is uh, truly in line and consistent with what you want Journey to become. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for the ability to sense that you've passed on your love to us that we can pass on to other people. So I pray that you'd open our hearts, give us the ability to just uh, enjoy uh, seeing what could happen. Uh, And Lord, we agree with you even now that it is happening and we see it happening. Lord, we'd just like to see it happen to a greater degree, that each one of us would be a, a part of what you're doing in this world. And so we love you and we pray that this sermon would be an encouragement to the body. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Okay, let's see here. For those of you that are guests this morning, this is not the normal position that pastors speak from. Right? Okay? All right. How how long am I going to be here? About seven minutes. Okay? So for those of you that have the gift of mercy and your stomach's churning right now, and you're going, will he stay up there? I will. I did last night. So follow with me today, would you? I'd like to uh, ask you about something now. Uh, what if the church, what if we as, as Journey Church um, ask ourselves the question that all churches have, has, churches have been asking for about, oh, I don't know, centuries, okay? And this is the question. What is the relationship between the clergy and the laity going to be like in our church? Now, by clergy, I mean the, uh, the people who are vocational pastors and staff and uh, folks that, that are... Uh, uh, full-time or paid, that type of thing. By laity, I mean the lay people, the rest of the congregation, uh, the people that come and attend, and many of them are part of the ministry too, but the, they're the ones that uh, are part of the volunteer and the ministry team here that are called lay people. Every church seeks to re- that's going to seek to reach its region and the world through its congregation is going to have to uh, ask themselves, what are we going to do about pastoral pedestalism? which is elevating a pastor to an inappropriate manner. 
What are we going to do about that? That's kind of why I'm up here. You thought I just had low self-esteem, didn't you? I'd like you to consider three things while I'm up here that are detrimental if a church begins to pedestalize uh, their church staff and specifically their pastors. First, let me say this to you. When you elevate a pastor to an unrealistic level, there's not much room up here for him to be himself. It's kind of narrow up here, you know? We make him unapproachable. We make him... Uh, and some congregations even holier than thou. We see him as being somehow different than the rest of us, having special spiritual grace unavailable to the rest of the congregation. He's not like the rest of us. My wife had a lady come up to her, uh, well, about, I suppose about 10 years ago, and she said, in all honesty, she came up to her, and in a hushed voice, she said, Connie, how do you live in a home with a pastor? And I don't believe my wife's here today. So I'm sure she said something like, uh, you know, it's not easy living with someone who's attained that level of sainthood. You know, that's right. Well, maybe she didn't quite say that. Knowing my wife, it wasn't anything like that. So unrealistic elevation of of, uh, pastoral staff as a way of saying he's less approachable. He doesn't understand how it is in the real world. So as a pastor, there's not much room up here to be yourself. You have to be careful about what you do, what you say, how you you look, all the things that that, uh, hinder him from being a real person. No one to talk to and be real with. Pastors are separated from the rest of the congregation and the rest of the Christ followers. And the additional problem is this, folks. Pastors are not only seen as out of touch with the rest of the congregation when we elevate them like this, but equally as troublesome is the people in the congregation begin to believe that um, they're not called to be like him. They're not called to be godly. He's the godly representative. We come and watch him or watch uh, uh, church staff, and uh, they're the ones kind of doing the ministry. We're not the ministers. They are. Well, godly living then is seen as a job of the pastoral staff, not those who attend the church. And that's a problem. The Bible really portrays it differently. It says in 2 Peter 1, 5 through 8, and this is a little bit long, so hang in there with me. For this reason, make every effort to add to your faith goodness. This is to all of us, isn't it? Paul is speaking to, excuse me, Peter is speaking to all of us here. And to, uh, excuse me, and to goodness, knowledge. And to knowledge, self-control. And to self-control, perseverance. And to perseverance, godliness. And to godliness, brotherly kindness. And to brotherly kindness, love. For if you possess these qualities in increasing measure, in other words, if you're growing in these qualities, They will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. If we want to be effective and productive as Christians, we're going to need to grow. All of us are going to need to grow. So secondly, second problem of elevating a pastor is this. When the pastor does do something that's not right or it's ungodly or sinful, it's a long way down from here, isn't it? when they fall off their pedestal, when they disappoint people by doing something ungodly, it's a a problem. Rather than seeing the pastoral staff as human beings, 
with real needs and real temptations, the elevated pastor who sins is treated as an exceptional sinner. His fall from a heightened position is uh, now disillusions many people in his congregation. He often leaves the pastor in shame and no one desires to restore him. Now don't misunderstand me here. You and I both know that in 1 Timothy and in Titus, there are lists of qualifications of pastors. And pastors need to lead well and live well if they're going to have the right to lead, right? Do you agree with that? Please follow my finger. Okay? Wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah. We're not excusing sin in our congregation, especially not in the pastoral staff. But when we pedestalize people, we, we make them vulnerable to being isolated and unable to receive support and help them as, and receive the help that all of us need when we're either tired or um, tempted. So remember to pray for your pastoral staff, would you? Remember to pray for pastors and the, the other staff that lead this church. You know, they need your prayers just like you need theirs. Pray for your pastoral staff. It's been a blessing to be on this staff and see the, the real godly intent that the staff has and how they work things out. If things pop up between them, they work them out. The third problem that is created by doing this to a pastoral staff is that there's not a lot of room for any other ministers up here. Kind of the pastoral staff or the ministers. When the pastoral staff is seen as the only ministers in the church, The power of the church is suppressed. God's plan for reaching the entire world with the good news will never happen as long as the only ministers are the full-time or part-time staff. So you might ask yourself, so how in the world did this idea of uh, the clergy being elevated get started anyway? Good question. I'll get off this. Let's look at that together today, all right? Where did the idea of priests or pastors or people uh, uh, being the only ministers in a congregation come from? Where did that originate? The book of Acts records the beginnings of the church. And in Acts 2.41, we find that Peter preached a sermon and 3,000 people put their faith in Christ. 3,000. That's pretty good church growth. And they began to associate together and... and, uh, uh, get taught together by the, by the apostles, and they began to minister to each other, folks. The Bible says in Acts that they ministered to one another. They were out doing things for each other. If somebody had a need, somebody with that gift or that ability met that need. Everyone took their responsibility. That's the book of Acts. Then missionaries were sent out, and congregations or groups of believers began to spring up all over the known world at that time. Paul and Barnabas and uh, all the the folks that began to scatter during the dispersion uh, created all kinds of new growth and new problems. Along with this growth came false teaching. People who taught things that were not true about Christ and about the church. Heresies and splits began to happen in congregations. So what was the response of the general church leadership, the apostles, uh, they began to do things like formalize what they really believed. They, they began to uh, say, you know, we need to begin to 
have everybody understanding what the church actually believes. So they formalized it in the form of creeds. The Apostles' Creed, the Nicene Creed, went on later on, uh, uh, a few, a couple centuries later or so, where they had the Westminster Confession. I mean, it just got larger and larger, all the things that they were writing down so that what was truly the uh, accurate uh, teaching of Jesus and the Apostles, what it truly was, continued to be taught. Then letters, people begin begin to write things down that were not accurate about Jesus and his teaching as well. So the apostles got together with other scribes and rabbis and they canonized the the, uh, letters and the things that had been written by Paul and Peter and other other folks and they they scrutinized them uh, through a, a really tight grid and that canonization became what we have now as our New Testament, right? Okay. So there was a strict criteria for that to happen, and then uh, they had kind of the the written teaching and the, the things that God wanted us to continue to believe down in writing. Well, a third thing that happened after that was that um, they elevated the clergy. They began to put the leadership uh, into place, and maybe in almost an unhealthy way. The leaders had to be those that would accurately teach the Bible. Eventually, they created the office of the priesthood because they felt that the laity, the lay people, couldn't be trusted to teach the right things. And in reality, back during that time, uh, education was not a priority. They, people did not even know how to read. And so uh, if, if uh, somebody didn't take care of accurate teaching, uh, things could go really awry. So in some ways, it was a good thing. But more and more, the laity were, were removed from leadership or ministry. And the teaching on spiritual gifts and lay ministry was actually put away for centuries. It was gone. By 313 AD, the Roman Emperor Constantine made the, the, the Christian faith uh, the official religion of the entire Roman Empire. Do you remember that? So by 313, from 313 to 1517, up to where Martin Luther is in the Reformation, the acceptable way of being uh, able to express your spiritual desire to serve God or to be in ministry of some sort was to join a monastery and become a monk. That kind of limited who was going to do that. Monks and church leaders then ignored or reinterpreted the Bible's teaching on lay ministry and spiritual gifts, again, for centuries. The Catholic monk and theologian Thomas Aquinas um, taught this. He said uh, that spiritual gifts and the fruit of the Spirit were the same thing, essentially. John, uh, uh, Martin Luther said spiritual gifts were like talents. They were um, uh, uh, blessings that you get. Not, not to be used individually. They were just kind of blessings that you get. John Calvin taught that supernatural gifts concluded. They finished with the death of the last apostle. So there were no supernatural gifts listed in the scripture after the death of the last of, of the apostles. They're all gone. John Wesley and the Methodists didn't do a whole lot better. They emphasized the Holy Spirit and God using people uh, with the Holy Spirit's help. But um, not through the spiritual gifts. They essentially set the spiritual gifts aside. All of these things just hindered what God wanted to do through his people individually, through spiritual gifts. 
Now, in the latter part of the 20th century, the idea of spiritual gifts, and, you know, it's in here. It's all over the place in the Bible. The idea of spiritual gifts began to be revisited. Pastors and teachers began to teach on the priesthood of all believers, which essentially means that everybody's a minister. Everybody can be used by God to express God's grace to other people. Churches rediscovered the Bible's teaching that we find in 1 Peter 4.10, one of my favorite verses. God has given each of you a gift from his great variety of spiritual gifts. Use them well to serve one another. Rather than being the only minister in the church, pastors begin to take on the role that the Bible tells them to take on as the equipper. They're to be equippers of the rest of the body to train us and help us put things together in our life to help us minister. The, the, they began to preach and teach on passages like Ephesians 4, 11 through 16. Now, this is a long passage, so hang in there. Now, these are the gifts that Christ gave to the church. The apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the pastors and teachers. Their responsibility is to equip God's people to do the work of the ministry, do the work and build up the church, the body of Christ. This will continue until we all come to such unity in the faith and knowledge of God's Son that we will be mature in the Lord, measuring up to all the fullness and complete standard of Christ. Let me just stop there for a second. That's what God wants us to do. Now, what's the result of that? Well, it comes up then in in verse 14. Then, if we express our spiritual gifts, we will no longer be immature like children. We won't be tossed and blown about by every wind and new teaching. We'll not be influenced by people who try to trick us with lies so clever they sound like the truth. Instead, we'll speak the truth in love, growing in every way more and more like Christ, who's the head of his body, the church. He makes the whole body fit together perfectly. That's the beauty of spiritual gifts. You see a church functioning with spiritual gifts, everybody's fitting together, doing the things that God would want them to do. So as each part does its own special work, it helps the other parts grow so that the whole body is healthy and growing and full of love. So pastors began to see the power of doing this and equipping everybody to discover their gifts and find their ministries. And people began to experience the excitement and joy of seeing God use them to do something eternal with their life. I don't know if you've woken up in the morning or not and thought, what's life all about anyway? What am I doing it is marking time. One pastor I knew said, you know, some people get up and go through their whole life and all they do is make a smudge. He said, he said I want to make a dent. I want to do something significant. Since the ministry is not confined to the official pastors and staff of the church, the opportunities for God to use every believer began to explode in the latter part of the 20th century. Churches like Journey began to spring up in the, in the next uh, decade. People who, uh, uh, on the outside of the church, who didn't know Christ, who had never understood God's love and grace, were seeing God's love and grace be expressed to them by people using their gifts. Unique ministries began inside and outside the church. And that's because people were using their passion to meet very unique needs that they spotted outside the church and inside as well. Parachurch ministries, ministries that function on their own outside the church. Like Gideon's, so we're going to hear about the Gideon's today. What a great ministry. 
started by people who said, I believe God wants to use me to do something significant. uh, Ministries like Campus Crusade, Focus on the Family, Navigators, other things like that began to spring up. But not only that, the beauty of the whole thing was inside the church, people began to discover their individual spiritual gifts. There was a lady, and I'm just going to get off off, uh, my notes here uh, for those of you that run the PowerPoint. Um, There was a lady in in Faith Church uh, about 15 years ago that came to the pastor and said, could we come and just have a meeting of anybody that might want to start a crisis pregnancy center? And the pastor said, yeah, I can announce that, sure. And they thought five or six people would show up. 50 people showed up. It was the fastest start of a crisis pregnancy in the nation up to that point. Maybe it isn't now, but at that point, it just went because one person said, you know, I believe God wants me to use what God has given me. I have a passion for something. I want God to help me get it done. People began ministries like that all over the place. And one of the incredible byproducts of those kinds of ministries was that people were not only empowered for ministry, they were elated in ministry. You'll find people that kind of go, oh, I just love this. This is the most important thing I do with my life. That's the way it ought to be in any church. It's addicting to see the things that God has put within you make an eternal effect on other people. It's fun to see your efforts in ministry actually change the course of somebody's life by using your spiritual gifts. You know, all this is true, folks, because of this. It matters. It matters. Let me give you some, just a few glimpses that I've seen around here and elsewhere as to how people are using their gifts and why it matters. It, it matters. Here's something that you kind of go, oh, that's not a big deal. It matters when, you, when someone who has no one else to turn to has other people come and help them pack up and move. It matters when you open your home to people to meet for a Bible study using your gift of hospitality. It matters when a child comes into base camp and learns about the love of Jesus because you're there with your spiritual gift of teaching or encouragement or wisdom or mercy, teaching that class. That matters. It matters when you take the time to mentor somebody and help them learn how to walk with Christ using your gift of encouragement or wisdom or leadership. It matters when you encounter a wounded person who's been wounded by the organized church and they come to this body of believers and find grace and mercy and acceptance. Using your gift of mercy, your gift of of hospitality. It matters when a middle school or high school student knows that someone will listen to them when when they want to talk about a really crucial decision in their life. And there's somebody there in that student ministry that will hear them and give them godly counsel. And without it, they'll make a very different decision. It matters when a young couple gets married and wants to know how to make that marriage last. And somebody sits down with them and shows them what the Bible says about a godly marriage and how to reconcile conflict. That's the gift of shepherding and the gift of wisdom. It matters when a pregnant young lady can come to a church and find people who do more than talk. This single young lady 
finds out that people, not just pastors, but people in that congregation give grace to her and unconditional love and help her know what to do about a real important decision concerning that baby. These things matter. Serving God matters. If you've placed your faith in Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit lives within you, you have spiritual gifts. God's Spirit has given you spiritual gifts. If you're a part of Journey Church, you can discover what those gifts are. You know, the painting over here that Callie's doing is the, talks about, or exhibits the, the vine and the branches. Jesus said, I'm, I'm the vine. I'm the, I'm the avenue of grace into this congregation. But you are the branches. And your spiritual gifts are avenues of grace that come out into our community. And other people discover the love of God, the truth of God's word through your lives. It's not going to happen just because Jesus came to this earth. He said, I'm the vine, but you are the branches. The spiritual grace that comes into this life, into this world, will not happen if the only avenue of grace are the solo solo pastors and a few staff in a church. This This world will be changed by the spiritual gifts in this congregation. And they'll be accomplished as every believer is unleashed on this community, on the region, and on the world. To kind of set your things aside real briefly, I'd just like to talk with you a minute. You have the ability to literally change this community and this world. Because see, there's not just you here. This is one of three services, isn't it? And folks, in case you didn't know, this is a fairly good-sized church. Now, there are other larger churches, but we're in the, probably the top 3 or 4% in the nation. Do you know that? Journey Church has an incredible potential and a credible, incredible responsibility. God has given us a phenomenal resource base. One, he's given us a congregation that's normal. When I went to seminary, my, wife, my wife's greatest fear was that, that I would come out weird. And you kind of go, well? Have you ever gone to a weird church? Okay. Well, it's God's church, so I'm not going to downplay the church. But, but there, are, there are churches that really are able to minister and those that seem to isolate themselves just like a monk would from the community. This church from the get-go has said, we're going this way. We're going to be reaching out. When Brian talks about this community center, once again, he's just hammering on that deal of, hey, this is, a, this is a gift to us that we're giving to the community as well. It's going to be a place of grace. Okay? And you know what? It's a place of grace, not because there's bricks and mortar and steel and stuff like that in there. It's a place of grace because of you. You leave that building, 
it's nothing. In fact, it's not even the church because the church just left the building. If you're here after a service, there's only two or three people here, this room is totally different because the church is gone. The church is left. The beautiful thing is I'm looking at people right now that God has gifted with lots of gifts. And discovering those gifts is your next step. So I'm just going to ask you even as we pray at the end of the service now to just make a commitment. God, in the next two or three months, I'm going to figure out what my spiritual gifts are. Would you consider making that commitment? And I dare you to uh, do that and not be a happier person. Okay? I dare you. The people that I know that are believers, that are the happiest people on the planet, are people that kind of go, you know, I just love doing what I'm doing. I don't go to church then and just kind of sit and soak. I go to church and realize that I'm a part of something large. I'm a part of something global. And I get to have a piece of it. Would you bow your heads with me for a minute? Father, what a delight it is to see the faces of these people here and just uh, hypothesize the power sitting in this room. Whether it be the power to finish a building or the power to start a new ministry or the power to sit down with somebody at City Brew and talk to them about how much God loves them and that they do not have to take the, the road that they're taking, that God can change their life. So, Lord, I pray for every person here in this service, even right now. Lord, may you give them a little glimpse of what you would want them to be about. We all feel that, oh, what can I do? Until we hook up with you. And I pray, Lord, that there would be a great resurgence of the the New Testament church within Journey where everybody is ministering to each other and outside the walls as well. Lord, may there be the uh, uh, great effect of grace in our community here first and on around the globe simply because of our decisions here today. Help us, Lord, to to be faithful to you and to, to listen to your voice and to discover our gifts and then to see with what you want us to do with those gifts. We love you. We thank you, Lord. And even in a couple minutes, we're going to sing a song about how much you love us. Lord, I pray as we sing that, that we would sense how much that love needs to go right into our heart and right on out into the community. May we be avenues of love and grace here in our area. In Jesus' name, amen.